I'm Jacob Schatz. And I'm Bryce Miller. And this is Talking Atlas. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Atlas. Jacob has returned from MAGFest. Rivals of Ixalan spoiler season is over, and we were given a present today. The present we've come to expect about twice a year, but just because we expect it doesn't mean we appreciate it any less. It's Plane Shift Ixalan. Hooray! The Plane Shift episodes are some of my favorite episodes that we get to do here on Talking Atlas, because it fuses two of my favorite things, Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons, or just tabletop gaming in general. Telling stories in the world of magic with your friends. As we have slowly established over the past four Plane Shift episodes, we're going to run through the supplement from end to end, giving our musings on whatever we come across. The Plane Shift Ixalan document is very thorough. The nice thing about all these various installments of Plane Shift is as we get to a plane that has a certain ethos to it, the document can shift to focus on that. The Plane Shift Ixalan document focuses a lot on the individual factions that are highlighted in Ixalan, what their motivations are, and it even gets a little nitty-grittier. Nittier-gritty? It's the nittiest-grittiest with some of its straight-up tables and information. I think it's nittier-gritty. It's like Surgeon's General. Ah, ah, good. Jacob, if you would be so kind as to start us off. Of course. Like most good things, we start at the beginning with an introduction from James Wyatt! Our hero. Our hero indeed. James Wyatt is the member of the creative team responsible for not only Plane Shift, but the much larger product, and I say product because it actually costs money, that Plane Shift is derived from, which are the art books. This introduction is particularly special because we learn that James Wyatt was the lead creative director behind the world building of Ixalan. And you can tell that he puts his heart and soul into this world and subsequently this document because this is the meatiest plane shift yet. It is the longest, it is the most robust. And it even concludes with a wonderful appendix that pertains to making campaigns in magic generally, not just in Ixalan by a long shot. After this, the first section of the document proper is the world of Ixalan. And we start right in with the factions. Each faction includes a brief blurb about who they are, what they care about, and why they want the golden city of Arazka, and then explains some of the softer mechanical elements to that faction. I like a good stat block as much as anybody, but I also really enjoy the motivations behind having certain classes fit within a certain faction. For example, the Sun Empire is made up entirely of humans, but there are a few suggested backgrounds for a human character within the Sun Empire. An acolyte, which would be a minor form of cleric, assistant to a cleric, basically. Or you could be an entertainer, a soldier, a noble, or a guild artisan. You know, if you want to art some guilds. I think we're on the wrong plane for that, though. That's true. <laughs> I don't know. I think Ravnica's got all the guilds that it needs. No one should be making any more. <laughs> After this is a list of suggested classes for that particular faction, as well as ways to massage those classes to better fit the aspects of the Sun Empire, or any of the other factions that are listed in this book. Because both magic and D&D are so heavily nuanced in the sorts of backgrounds and classes you can have, a bulk of many Plane Shift documents is telling you, eh, probably connect these two, 
That's also true of the monster manual, or the monster subsection that we'll touch on later. The Sun Empire section continues into two tables, suggested ideals and suggested bonds, which each give you six options. The ideals are things that inspire or motivate your character. The bonds might be connections to a person or a faction or the world. And these are provided for all four of the primary factions. Characters are the heart and soul of any D&D campaign, and these sections give a great starting point to find your place in the world of Ixalan. As I'm reading through the suggested classes, though, I have to bring this up because the sound of my gears grinding is getting too loud. I was wondering what that was. Yeah, it's a little distracting. This is a very petty thing, but we don't get to talk about D&D a whole lot, so I'm gonna make note of it here. I really hate that the specializations for the bard are labeled as colleges. Each class in D&D branches off into one of a few different options early on in its character progression. Paladins pick up an oath. Clerics devote themselves to a deity. Bards attend a college. And that doesn't feel setting agnostic to me. I don't think it makes sense that the Sun Empire has what's called a College of Valor. It just doesn't track. But but what if it's like a temple where they have open mic nights? Is is that okay? <laughs> it's like a it's like no, no no it's like a tavern. It's a tavern in a Aztec style stone structure. They don't know why they call it an open mic because they don't have any concept of a microphone. But it's definitely open, whatever it is. Bryce, I'd like to thank you for giving a very fine example of exactly what makes this problematic to me. <laughs> is that people will find any way to justify it? It is that words have meanings and connotations, and certain places are not going to have a college, just like certain places are not going to have a tavern. Every place could have someone who takes up an oath. A lot of places, most places in D&D cosmology, are going to have a deity or a pantheon of deities to choose from. But not every place is going to have a college. And every time I read that here in the Sun Empire description, or I guess you could probably get away with it for the Legion of Dusk, but not every setting is going to have that. And I want more bards in my settings, because bards are awesome. Music and magic fused together absolutely sign me up. But not all of them are going to go to a college to learn their craft. Okay, okay. Hear me out. I got this. They oh, misspelled collage. It was, oh, it's a combination of, of valorous acts that they pass down in an oral tradition of storytelling and songs. Because it's a pastiche, it's a collage. It's supposed to be the collage of valor. And this being the song that is most central to the heroes of the Sun Empire, of course you would study it. You would study the collage of valor. In case that got picked up on my mic... That is the police coming to take you away because you've committed a crime against me. <laughs> oh, I love my job. They're going. Oh, I, there they go. Yeah, they're, they're, really, yeah, they're, they're coming to they're, get you. They're engaged. I've sent the entire squad after you. I didn't think it was that bad of a crime. No one can, no one can run from the kinds of sins you've committed. Well, good thing I've studied the collage of Valor so much, I really know how to escape authorities when they are unjustly chasing me. Yeah, put together a scrapbook. <laughs> it's very convincing, okay? 
What are we doing here? What is this bit? Mostly I'm buying time for the sirens to go away. <laughs> <laughs> I hate this. Anytime we can do something appropriately silly or inappropriately silly as a case may be, that is appropriate to put in the episode and isn't a cut for outtakes, I'm on board. Yes. All right, well, now that I'm, I'm going to push that particular train wreck off the tracks and move on to the River Heralds. The River Heralds are the merfolk of Ixalan. They are a little bit factioned in the story. There's Kumena, who wants to seize the power of Araska to drive away those who would misuse it that aren't him. The other River Heralds, led by Tashana, are trying to maintain the status quo of the River Heralds, which is, no one should know the location of the Golden City of Oraska. The Immortal Sun must be kept secret at all costs. That's uh, that's not really happening anymore. Bit late on that front. The backgrounds for the Merfolk are a little bit more limited. They are recommended as acolytes, folk heroes, hermits, outlanders, or sages. Outlander seems like an interesting... Well, ignoring the potential puns there, I suppose you might have a Merfolk who is following unfamiliar waters and discovers someplace new. I'm trying to remember exactly what the Outlander background is. Because Hermit is its own thing. Outlanders might just be travelers. So an Outlander okay. could show up in the Sun Empire if they were from the River Heralds, perhaps. Something I did not expect of the River Heralds, one of their suggested classes is Fighter, and includes that they might be Eldritch Knights or their equivalent, quote, who fuse arcane magic with the use of their weapons. I can see that being flavored in a more druidic, I am summoning nature and, and combining it into my weapon, but we didn't see a lick of that in Ixalan. This is one of the limitations of fusing D&D and Magic the Gathering. D&D spells aren't sectioned off by color like magic is. So a blue-green merfolk fighter, for example, would almost certainly have access to a lot of fire spells. Oh, that's just weird. Mm-hmm. That's really weird. This is one of the frustrations that I have with D&D, at least in terms of putting it together with magic. The spells are otherwise balanced fine. They're just broken down by level and also by school. So if you're a wizard, you might lean towards one particular school of magic. But for the most part, your spells are pretty accessible no matter what they do. If you're a wizard, you can do all kinds of wizardy magic. Some classes even have access to all possible spells for that particular class. I believe 5th edition druids, instead of getting a short number of spells based on the number of spell slots that you have, druids just have the full druid spell list each time they level and get new spells, and they just have a fixed number of times that they can cast their druid spells. As much as it's frustrating, I think it's also entirely permissible. We already talked about magic and D&D, both being related but disparate, highly complex settings with different mechanics, and I think that's the role of the DM. If you're playing a River Herald wizard, and you say, cool, I'm going to learn this Firestorm spell, it's the job of your DM to say, that's, that's dumb, unless you're going to be a River Herald who for some reason has decided to hate nature, which actually might be a pretty compelling line of story, then no, the watery nature merfolk is not going to learn a fire spell. On the one hand, I agree. DM does have the power to invoke rule zero. And I don't always advise doing that for player characters, because express yourself through your character in whatever way that you want to, including sometimes when you express yourself as, I am a person who wants to be 
a strong character with a diverse array of spells in the game Dungeons and Dragons. That's fair. However, I also think that a rule set that guides players towards a particular direction is vital because having those conflicts between player and DM stinks. And admittedly, this is not what D&D was designed to do. We're trying to make it do a thing that it's not inherently supposed to be able to do. So I'll take that with a grain of salt. But it's one of the things that you really have to work at in order to make magic work with D&D is getting your spells right. We can do all of these setting ideas. We can do all of these character backgrounds. And we should do all of these character setup things. But... I don't think that we're ever going to get a completely successful 100% of the time fusion of these two games until we have an enumerated magic system that replaces D&D's magic system with something that aligns more closely with how magic is broken down. Which unfortunately, as I think we've probably touched on before, is very much outside the scope of these plane shift documents. They're wonderful. We love them. They're also released for free online. Now, if... There were enough excitement behind Plane Shift that Wizards found the time to make a magic, magic, that's not confusing at all, a Magic the Gathering magic system, full-on physical supplement to D&D, I would be on that in a heartbeat. Definitely, on all accounts. A magic system is completely outside the scope of these Plane Shifts. If we got a 40-page appendix after a Plane Shift that went into how the magic system works and what spells were available... I would also think that's a problem because that's not what these documents are intended to do. They're supposed to show off the plane and show off the art book. And they do that in spades, as well as going above and beyond by creating this cool bridge between Magic and D&D players. These documents, each in their own ways, I found, and I'll get into that a little bit later as we get into Plane Shift Ixalan, provide some reaching across the aisle between these two properties. At any rate, let's go on to the next of the factions that are at the start of this document, because we are still at the start of this document. Yep, and it's pretty big, as we've already talked about. The Legion of Dusk is made up of vampires and humans. Vampires being the nobles, humans being their, we'll politely call them attendants. And I say that because under the suggested backgrounds... There's Acolyte, Noble, Sage, Soldier, and Urchin, and Urchin is only available to humans. If that tells you anything about humans' role in the Legion of Dusk. It is worth noting that the vampires of the Legion of Dusk are people who have chosen to be converted into vampires for their own reasons. It might be for power, it might be because they are devoted to their queen and their church and their cause, and they know the most powerful way they can help is, is that way. That does not preclude humans for being high-ranking members of the Legion of Dusk. But most of their most vicious fighters and their most well-known people are the ageless vampires, go figure. The classes that are available to the Legion of Dusk are Cleric, Fighter, Monk, and Paladin. I'd really, really like to see a vampire monk because of the way that the Bloodfast works for particularly pious vampires. Mavrin Fane from the Ixalan story, would be a pretty good example of a vampire monk. I'm going to write myself a little note that when we get to the vampire's stat blocks and such and the bloodfast, I really want to hear your take on bloodfasting vampire monks. And finally, we have the Pirates of the Brazen Coalition. 
The races are Goblin, Human, Orc, and Siren. Suggested backgrounds, Charlatan, Criminal, Entertainer, Folk Hero, Sage, and Sailor. And a lot of the classes here fit pretty well to top-down what you expect a pirate to be. I think the most stretch is Wizard, but even then you can imagine, all right, in a, in a fantasy setting, we're not just Pirates of the Caribbean, we are Pirates of the Caribbean with magic. So of course there are going to be wayfaring wizards probably supplementing the rest of the crew of a ship. All the others, Bard, Fighter, Rogue, even Warlock, make a good deal of sense. If you haven't read through all of Ixalan's story yet, do yourself a favor and go find the bits where they talk about sailing magic, because it's fantastic. A topic that is addressed in more detail later on in the document, but is mentioned in the Warlock description here, there are demons on Ixalan. I don't think any demon cards were printed. There are horrors, but no demons. They're really cool, though. And now, the races of Ixalan. And I'm going to start us off because the first race listed is human. Humans, it turns out, are very boring. They're so boring. They're just nothing. They, they have well-rounded stats and speak a language. Gosh, humans are the worst. Who let them be the stars? I hate this. Aren't you glad that we're not humans? Oh, definitely. I mean, um, uh, I, I, Jide, are, aren't you glad that we fit in so well as completely normal humans? I do love the human heroes from their folktales. Our folktales. <laughs> I especially love the ones that have been taught at the Collage of Valor. Yes, the greatest of all the collages. The most valorous. <laughs> Let us quickly move to Merfolk. Because I've been waiting for a Morfolk... Morfolk? More, uh, more, Morfolk. Mor Morfolk mor or less folk? An Ankh Morfolk supplement, yes. <laughs> <sighs> Come on, man. That's basically Ravnica, though. Yeah, it is. It's Ravnica with a bit more absurdity. I'd go there. Merfolk come in two flavors on Ixalan, blue and green. And frankly, I'm very pleased with the simplicity of that. <laughs> so, blue raspberry and green apple, if I've learned anything from candy? Yeah. They're also colorful. Don't taste the delicious merfolk. Okay, now I'm imagining the violently yellow merfolk from Aggressive Urge and someone <laughs> licking his face. <laughs> him being really upset at this turn of events. I would be upset if someone went up and licked my face. He does look very upset. There's something <laughs> kind of cartoonish about him. Anyway, pray carry on. Blue and green merfolk, not... Cave merfolk, or tree merfolk, or river merfolk, which would be quite redundant, but green and blue. The green ones are good at blending in with the green, the foliage and whatnot. The blue ones are smart. That's what blue things are in this world. They're smart. And, you know, they're also a little bit better in the water. They swim quick. The vampires have a number of interesting traits, some of which are completely to be expected. They have dark vision. They can see well in dimly lit environments. They have resistance to necrotic damage because they're already undead. Now, the two vampire-specific ones, one of which I believe is unique to this supplement, there's Bloodthirst. You can drain blood and life energy from a willing creature or one that is grappled by you, incapacitated, or restrained. Now, this is for straight-up damage and then you heal a bit. The Feast of Blood is when you drain blood with your Bloodthirst ability, you experience a surge of vitality, your speed increases by 10 feet, and you gain advantage on strength and dexterity checks and saving throws for one minute. Now, that sounds absolutely glorious for that vampire monk. 
I think that it is a very good ability that makes a vampire monk more active and able in combat. I think it's not representative of an Ixalan vampire. And why is that? At no point in either of these abilities do we have anything that relates to when you don't drink blood for a long period of time. The vampires on Ixalan start to go crazy when they don't drink blood for a long period of time. But they also start to get visions. One of them got a vision of where Orozka was, so it wasn't just happenstance or freaky coincidence. They actually get some sort of interesting vision that goes along with it. They probably get a huge stat penalty to intelligence and wisdom and maybe a little charisma. Navrin Frayn didn't look so good when we found him. And none of that is reflected in how these vampires work. 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 Is there anything in D&D's vampires that describes their need to drink blood? I'm not entirely sure. I think most vampires in D&D work effectively like this, where you get a bonus after drinking, you have to drink or you maybe start to starve, but there is nothing exactly like the blood fast. Which is unfortunate because that's not the only thing that goes along with the vampire race on Ixalan, but to me, it's the most interesting thing. It's what makes Ixalan vampires more distinct and almost justifies them of their additional white in their color alignment. The next race we have are orcs, and I'm going to leave this one to Jacob because there's a particular slight. I'm really sorry that we get two of my whining ones in a row. I do also just mechanically really like the Ixalan vampires, the stat block here. I think it's fine for any kind of vampire character, and vampire characters aren't super common, so it's nice that we get them here. But I do have that one slide against it. The slide that I have with the orc stat block, I don't have too many more caveats to it. I think it's the coward's way out, because the orcs of Ixalan use the half-orc traits in the player's handbook. No! What? <laughs> no! What? Oh, orcs are not half-orcs. They are all orc. They are 100% orc. 100% Angus certified orc. <laughs> I'm assuming that half-orcs would be a halfling that is part orc. There, there, I assume there's no orc. That's amazing. Sorry. If you intended for halfling to be a, a sort of cute term for half-human, half-orc, then you would have been correct. But now you've given me this image of a half-hobbit, half-orc, which is <laughs> which is not what it is at all. Oh, okay. I I don't recall. It's been a while since I've played D&D. Sorry. Oh, wow. That is the best mental image that I've had in a while. <laughs> Just like a really angry dwarf at that point with an underbite, right? Orcs don't necessarily have underbites. Well, they generally do. I mean, it helps them be distinct. No, the only reason that I complain about this is because there are orcs in D&D canon, and those orcs have stats and have things associated with them that could have been applied here. And I can understand why they wouldn't necessarily want to do that as well, because orcs in most aspects of D&D are a little bit more barbarous. I mean, every orc that we see in Ixalan is a pirate, so your mileage may vary, but more primitive shamanistic instead of the occasionally wizards, according to this supplement. So yeah, maybe D&D &D orcs don't quite line up with Ixalan orcs. 
And maybe the Orcs of Ixalan fit well enough with the half-orc traits that normal D&D has. But I can't look at the phrase, Orcs use half-orc traits, and not get a little bit concerned. Apropos of nothing, seeing the enlarged art for Direfleet Ravager in the supplement, I see now that his ball and chain has barnacles on it, and I think that's adorable. I love Magic the Gathering art. I really do. Nah, it's okay. (laughs) Going on now to the goblins. This is where I get a little bit petty. I think that Wizards does a fantastic job of differentiating its fantasy races across different planes. And it's plain to see. Just look at elves. There are a dozen and a half planes that have elves on them, but they somehow manage to make each one clearly visually distinct. I will never confuse a Lorwyn Shadowmoor elf with a Zendikari elf, and that's awesome. The same is true of their goblins, but the goblins on this plane are basically monkeys. And I think the reason this tends to bother me is because there are also monkeys in magic. And if you showed me these creatures with absolutely no context, I would have said, those are blue monkeys. Because we need to inject some amount of positivity into this, I love these blue monkey goblins. I'm excited to be a part of them. Getting to the last of the races here and into a bit more positivity. Sirens. There's something about the sirens on this plane that I really enjoy. I think it's the fact that they are actually nuanced. We get sirens every now and again in Magic. They were central-ish on Theros because they are a very tropey trope of Greek mythology, and they appear periodically elsewhere, but they're slightly above monsters. Yes, they are somewhat intelligent. Yes, they can communicate, but the only thing they tend to do is call you over and drown you. Admittedly, some of the Ixalan sirens do just that, and their capriciousness is described in the supplement. But there are also sirens who are pirates. And even main characters, not main characters, but characters who say anything or do anything in the Ixalan story who are sirens. And I'm glad for that. I always enjoy seeing some fantasy race being given more depth than its most monstrous parts. As a DM, I'm also really glad that the sirens are here because designing interesting encounters for players hinges upon... Not only what you can come up with as a DM, but what your players and their characters can bring to the table. I have a particular affinity for player character races that can fly. Because if you don't design your encounter around the fact that one of your party members can fly, the whole thing can break wide open if you're not careful. It's like giving a character in a platformer a jetpack. It can just break half the puzzles if you don't design the puzzles for the fact that they're going to have a jetpack. Having characters that have flying speeds and then balancing that race down, sirens can't wear medium to heavy armor and also fly, so they can't be a flying tank. But they have a specialized skill set and something that very few other members of your party are going to have. It makes you design better, it creates interesting scenarios, and it also makes the characters more concerned When that thing gets taken away, what if their wings get bound or something happens to take that new and very strong power away from them for a session? How do they cope with this? It allows for new scenarios that you couldn't even think of before and takes old scenarios and makes them feel new in a different context. All by making one of your people a bird person. Sirens are cool. Following the races section, there's a small little addendum that I'm sure Jacob will remember better than I can if this has been done previously, it 
touches on some of the other plane shifts, specifically plane shift Zendikar, describing that there are sub-races in this setting that are also present in Zendikar. You can compare these. If you want to tweak them, here are some easy ways to do that. Here's information we've already given you. This section is remarkably important to me. It's small. To a lot of people, it's going to be practically nothing. But I think it's really, really crucial in tying some of these things together. Firstly, it codifies that certain races across the multiverse and within Magic's setting, not just these individual planes, have mechanical similarities. We're building up a body of work that shares features across these different solo documents. That's really cool. Also, for those of you who are aggregating data from these documents at home, it makes clear what is for a core component of this race across the multiverse and what is sectioned out separately for the sub-races. And thirdly, thematically, it reminds people who are playing this purely for D&D content that there is a multiverse involved here. That there are more planes, and if this is someone's first plane shift supplement, they can see this and go, oh, I should go back and read the other ones. There's more here, and it's all related. The best part about Magic setting is that it is a multiverse and that all of these planes are related in some way. So the fact that we're getting more of these sections in these documents as we go on, we get more reminders that the multiverse exists and more opportunities for a DM to construct their adventure around the multiverse, the more likely it is that we can get more stuff in that vein in the future. The plane shift experiment started off on the easiest to D&Dify plane. And now we're getting into enough lore and enough backlog of these plane shift supplements to create a more comprehensive setting and adventure that feels like it's in the magic multiverse. The very end of this plane shift supplement does this even better, but we'll get there. There's still more to go. And I imagine we'll have to pick up the pace a little bit so that we can actually have enough time when we get there. Next section, maps. Yes, Ixalan actually has a map. This is something Wizards really rarely does for a setting, and as much as I love cartography and really the graphic design that goes into that as well, in, in terms of making it for a modern game as opposed to actually a cartographer drawing it, they're beautiful, but I understand why they don't happen much. Planes are meant to be, nowadays, with our current understanding, as revisitable as possible. Wizards doesn't like concluding a story in such a way that a plane is made invalid. Original Ravnica block concluded with the guilds being dissolved. You may have forgotten this fact, because when we returned to Ravnica, the guilds were just back. Something happened, they all came back, even though there's no guild pack to hold them together. And no one's really mad about this, because we liked the guilds. That's the whole reason that we liked Ravnica in the first place. Why did you kill them? Yes, to be clear, I'm not criticizing that choice. That is absolutely a good choice. I attribute the existence of these maps in this supplement entirely to James Wyatt, because I've watched him and listened to him as he's made these things, and he thinks in a very D&D-styled mindset. So since he's taken chief world-building duties on this project, you can imagine that this map was made probably pretty early on in the process. Apologies, I got off track. Concluding that thought about maps, Wizards does not want to paint themselves into a corner. One way they can paint themselves into a corner is by saying, Here is a map of the extent of this plane! And then coming back for a return set and saying, uh, you know what? I really wish that we could make up a continent right here, or put something between this thing and this thing. Now, they've avoided this partially for Ixalan the set, 
because Ixalan, the continent, is only a part of Ixalan, the plane. And I'm sure that wasn't confusing at all. Ixalan is only a small part of Ixalan. It makes sense. It's magic. I don't gotta explain it. The next section is the all-important treasure section! This is adorable. What are you gonna do with the pirate crew if you don't give them treasure? The art object section is particularly great. Art objects on Ixalan are tuned to the different factions. So you could get a silver medallion from the Sun Empire as a 25 gold piece art object, or a cloth of gold vestment from the Legion of Dusk. And then as you work your way up to the higher tiers, you could get a treasure chest crafted of exotic wood with gold fittings and opals from the Brazen Coalition. And now, the Ixalan Bestiary, beginning with dinosaurs. There are surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, there are a lot of dinosaurs I have learned in the D&D various manuals. There's a bunch of pages in the first monster manual for 5th edition that just have a pile of dinosaurs on them. They're not super differentiated between each other. There are big stomping brutes that are going to kill you by stepping on you, for the most part. An ankylosaurus might be able to club you with its tail, a triceratops might gore you with its horns, so they have different actions associated with them, but they're big, they're scaly. They do damage. I think my favorite sentence in this supplement, or at least in this section, assuredly, is the giant goat statistics in the monster manual can represent a hammer skull. Which I guess makes sense, because a goat is going to be the kind of thing that will use its horns to whack something out of its way. At the same time, I have a hard time equating a goat to a dinosaur. It is a little tough to reckon with. The word giant is a very hand-wavy word in the monster manual, I've found. Oh, this thing is usually a challenge level zero? Uh, let's make it giant. Alright, it's like a two or three now. That's fine. Alrighty, since we're a little bit short on time, I want to cut forward to the badass stat blocks in this section. Beginning with Gishoth, Sun's Avatar, a legendary creature from Ixalan the set, has his own massive block. He's got multi-attack, can bite things, swallow things. And I was a little disappointed with Gishoth only because he was a challenge level 10, and I thought to myself, well, that's not... The strongest? I mean, Gishoth's pretty big. He's supposed to do a lot of damage, right? What could be in this supplement to take on level 20 heroes? I said yeah, to myself. I don't know. And then I came across the Elder Dinosaur stat block. There are six Elder Dinosaurs in this set. One for each of the monocolors, and then a tricolor red, white, green dinosaur. I love the way that they've built these so that they don't have 18 pages of Elder Dinosaur stat blocks. Elder Dinosaur, as a creature type, has its own core stat block. It is challenge level 30, so it was completely gratified. It has a bunch of actions that any of the Elder Dinosaurs can have, including Legendary Resistance, which is pretty typical to boss monsters, and some Legendary actions that they can take, because if you're that big and that dangerous, you get to act in between players' turns. And each of the six individual Primal Dinosaurs has an additional set of actions that they can do. Zatalpa Primal Dawn, the white pterosaur, has a fly speed and so many attacks at once. So many attacks. So many. Double Strike doesn't even begin to cut it. Nezahal, the Primal Tide, has a swim speed. Itali, the Primal Storm, has a lightning storm that just hangs around her? That is so awesome. It goes on. It just keeps going on. Each of the Primal Dinosaurs has their own crazy extra attacks that they get to do and actions that make them feel distinct 
and it only takes one page of additional stats past the Elder Dinosaur stat block to cover all of these and make a bunch of different boss monsters that you could use in your campaign. Perfect. Flawless execution. Further on, we have a Sunbird stat block, which the only quibble that I have is that the Sunbird knows Giant Owl, but then again, it looks exactly like an owl, so I'm going to rescind that. And me being a sucker for owls, I am always happy to see them in my fantasy worlds. Phoenixes are just pretty. I'm glad that this got a stat block. Oh, the most important stat block is the Chupacabra. Wait, wait, wait. We can't skip past this one thing. Because there's a section in the bestiary that is titled Night Terrors, which leads into the Chupacabras eventually. But it also talks about demons. Because there are demons on Ixalan, we just didn't see any on cards. They are aligned with the Bat God. Uh, The Bat God is presumably Aklazots. If you look at the Black Flip Enchantment land from Ixalan. That bat god reference there is the antithesis of the Sun Empire's three-aspected god. Most importantly, this section is headed by an awesome piece of art by Zach Stella of the, what are described as kind of bat-like, although that's an understatement, demons of Ixalan. There have been times where you have complained about there being demons somewhere. See, Kaladesh. I want to see these demons so bad. I don't even like demons. I'm not even a black aligned <laughs> player, but I really want to see one of these demons. Also, it's kind of amusing that we see a lot of demons threatening people. I think this demon is helping guide this pirate. Go that way. <laughs> Pirate's like, okay. To be fair, that pirate is going in the opposite direction of where the demon is pointing because the boat is pointed backwards. I don't know why that man is going in the opposite direction of where the demon is pointing. But he definitely is. Perhaps the demon is saying, look over there. Hey, what's that over there? Oh, it worked. He's looking in the direction (sighs) that he's pointing. Made you look. (laughs) (laughs) But please do pick back up on the chupacabras because they're awesome. Chupacabras are here. They are monstrosities and they're great and their art is fantastic and they are so unique to Ixalan. I wish we got chupacabras elsewhere, but I'm also glad that we got them here because they fit perfectly. Yeah, it's really not appropriate anywhere else if only because there are certain fantasy tropes that are slightly more universal for magic worlds and chupacabras are regrettably not one of them there's a bit more to the bestiary but i'm going to cut now to that appendix we mentioned it's called the colors of magic and i'm going to turn this one over primarily to jacob this is exactly what i'm talking about when i talk about reaching across the aisle both ways for magic players and D players this appendix is seven pages long The first two pages are an overview on the colors of magic, and the last five pages are individually about each color. With this appendix, if you have a friend who plays D&D and wants to understand something about the way that magic in Magic the Gathering works, you now have two pages, really one and a half pages of text that perfectly encapsulates everything that corresponds between magic's five-color system and the general ethos of D&D. Here's an interesting fact about me. I don't particularly love the typical D&D alignment system. I think it's pretty good for what it does. I think it's spawned a bunch of other kinds of alignment systems and is very important for being the progenitor of thinking about who your character is and breaking down the basic tenets of what that character believes and how that character acts. But in my opinion it doesn't quite do the job of encapsulating a character in a specific enough way. And the other reason that I have qualms with it 
is because it is so strictly tied to a very old school D&D ideal of what is good, what is evil, what is lawful, and what is chaotic. These aren't just, how does this make you feel? How is this affecting other people? In old school D&D, these were metaphysical forces in the world. There was a god that was related to goodness, and there was a god that was related to evilness, and ones for law and chaos. And if you were going alongside with their ideals and working towards their purposes, regardless of what you were actually doing, you could be categorized and suffer negative penalties in one way or another. For example, if you killed a beast of law, you would be considered a chaotic agent, even if you did it for what otherwise might be considered lawful reasons. So that being said, I'm not the hugest fan of it. However, the most important thing about that system is that everybody kind of gets it. People who play tabletop games, and especially D&D, they think of the world or can think of the world in these terms. So in order to reach across to them, this supplement does a great job of explaining how the colors of magic work into the nine boxes that are created on the law and chaos good and evil grid. Just as an example, I'll walk through the color combinations that are given for white. As most of you listening to this will know, white is about order, protection, and community. And the alignment that they give for white characters, white places, white things in Magic's multiverse is any lawful alignment or any good alignment. There's also a breakdown of what sorts of powers a white character might have. So healing, protecting magic, binding, bolstering. There are races that are related to the white color alignment, and these are going to be all familiar to you. Humans, cores, dwarves, Avon, and then specifically Ixalan vampires are white. Classes, for white characters, there's the cleric, the paladin, and the fighter. And then backgrounds that are associated with white include the acolyte, folk hero, noble, and soldier. There are white ideals and personality traits to help you build the character. And then it gets into the color combinations. You'll notice that for the alignment, they didn't say lawful good. They didn't say lawful neutral. They gave a starting point, half of the combination. And then the other colors that feed into this can alter that color combination or push it in a particular direction. For example, it says adding blue to white steers it towards lawful neutral. So you have a devout monk or an honorable paladin. Adding black steers towards lawful evil. Oppressive clerics, fallen paladins. Red gives you a zealously lawful good. And adding green steers it towards neutral good. So if you hand this to a D&D player, they're going to understand very quickly what each of the colors means in Magic's multiverse, and how these colors can be combined to create a more robust character. This is so cool to me, because I think that Magic's alignment system leads to way more interesting character types than D&D's alignment system, because Magic's system is more about what you care about, and how you put those plans into action, rather than what your place in the metaphysics of the world are. The first two pages do explain how magic and personality intersect in Magic the Gathering as well. So magic is a piece of the world. It's a piece of the multiverse. It exists on all planes in magic. And yeah, 
it is some sort of fundamental physical property. It's produced by lands. Mountains produce red mana. This makes sense to people who have been playing magic for a while, but for those who are in D&D, it might be a little bit weirder. The thing that's going to help them over that is other ways that magic and colors of magic manifest. Philosophical principles is the big one. It's the one that I talk about a lot. It's the one that I've stressed mostly while breaking down this appendix. I almost wish that they had gone through all of the summaries when they list the philosophical principles here, but that's quibbling over details. It's still really good. The list goes on here. Mostly what this appendix does is sets up players for the understanding that the colors of magic cannot matter in a D&D world, whether or not they matter mechanically. This undoes a little bit of the damage that we've described earlier, where D&D has an idea of what magic is, Magic the Gathering has an idea of what magic is, and those don't always align. So if you can't give your players a full-on magic system that is representative of what magic is, you can at least give them all the information and justification to play within certain spaces. And it's better to say, here are some ideas that you can think about when building your character for this world. Here's a different approach to building your character to make it more easily fit in with the magic multiverse than it is to say, here are your new boxes. They don't look like your old boxes, but you're going to fit in them one way or another. This appendix can make people want to play a red-white soldier instead of a lawful neutral soldier, or a blue-green wizard instead of a true neutral wizard. Most of the Plane Shift supplements have been about getting Magic players to consider taking up D&D, which I think is great. I think giving players a way to access the worlds and stories that they love in a new way is extremely empowering and super cool. But this supplement also reaches the other way. It says, hey, D&D players, we know you like your system. We know you like the mechanics of it. What if you tried to build stories and make characters from another direction? What if you took a different approach and what if you could consider even the characters that you already have in a different way? Magic has a way for that. Come and play with us. So that's why with all of the little quibblings and things that I have over a bunch of tiny pieces of this supplement, I think that the Ixalan Plane Shift is definitely the most important that we've gotten from getting players from one game to interact with the systems of another. It does a great job of that. And, as I've said before, you can pick up this last little section and hand it over to a friend who's never played Magic the Gathering, and they can understand, oh, this is what you see when you care about these characters. This is how you look at your game of cards as I look at my game of dice and figurines. I love Plane Shift. I want to see more Plane Shifts. I can't even imagine what Plane Shift Dominari is going to look like. That's got to be at least 50 pages long. I'm calling it now. This one was 47 pages long, and it's about a world that we've never been to before. If we're going to Dominaria, we're going to have so much going on. I think the highest compliment that I can pay to the Plane Shift supplements is that I am not someone who really often plays D&D. I do play a decent amount of tabletop RPG, but it tends to be the Warhammer 40k ones, more so because I like the systems better. That being said, Plane Shift D&D makes me more excited to play D&D. 
It was really funny when we were talking about recording for today because you texted me and said, hey, is this recording time fine? And I said, sure. Are we going to do Plane Shift Ixalan? Which I assume is the first time that you had heard that Plane Shift Ixalan was out for the day. Yes. Because your response was, oh, yeah. <laughs> More or less, yes. It was all caps. It was yelling. I was like, oh, she is ready to talk about Plane Shift Ixalan, which was not the response that I was expecting, but I was very pleased by it. Well, Jacob, if someone wanted to engage you in the nuance of the color pie, where could they go? They could find me anywhere they find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit, and I got most of it out of my system here, but I could probably give you one or two more nuggets of wisdom. And Bryce, if someone wanted to propose to you their idea for a character that would be a legendary monkey goblin, where would they be able to find you? They would be able to find me, slightly exasperated, on Twitter, as walking underscore atlas, or you can email us at info at opalnebula.com. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash opalnebula. And before we go, I'm going to do something that we haven't done before. I'm going to issue our listeners a challenge. Ooh, okay. We've gone through the Plane Shift Supplement. We've told you all about the different kinds of characters that you can create. But kinds of characters are fine. What I'm really interested with is what actual characters you're going to make. What kinds of people would you like to play in the setting of Ixalan? So if you tweet at me, that's either me or Bryce, we just gave you our handles. So I know you can do it. If you missed it, it's walking underscore Atlas and Frogger spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. Tweet at us a short description of a character that you would play on Ixalan, and I will send you back a picture of a nice piece of treasure that your character will have when they start. And you can send that picture to your DM and insist that a professional podcaster, that a podcast, <laughs> that someone who speaks into a mic on occasion told you that it was okay. There we go. Respect your DMs, they have the rules. But you could show them a really nice picture and they might let you have something. It's worked for me. That's a reminder. Tweet at us with a description of your character. I will give you some fancy piece of treasure that that character has to start. And we're going to have a great Visually, time. Visually, not actually. Right, we're not going to give right. you any gold yeah. or jade we can't mail or you vampiric anything. artifacts. Yeah, no, postage sucks. But I'll give you a nice thing, maybe a description of a magic artifact or something, or a cool trinket that your character specifically has, or found on their way to whatever journey they're about to take. You'll get a nice thing. Tweet at us. We like hearing from you. Why don't you have a call? When are you going to give me grandchildren? <laughs> <laughs> but until then... Happy planes walking, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>